Jewish Perspective. And welcome to this edition of Paris Perspective with me, David Coffey. In the 16th edition of the Global Peace Index published this week, military expenditure has fallen worldwide. However, China, the US and Iran have increased their military spending. Despite the ongoing war of attrition in Ukraine, Europe is still the most peaceful region in the world. However, the situation regarding violent protests worldwide has deteriorated and when broken down economically, the impact of violence on the global economy in 2021 was $16.5 trillion, or $2,117 per person on the planet. Now, today on Paris Perspective, I'm joined by Australian philanthropist and two-time Nobel Peace Prize nominee Steve Killalay, who is the founder of the Institute of Economics or for Economics and Peace, and also the founder of the Global Peace Index. Steve, you're very welcome to Paris Perspective today. Great. It's uh, really good to be here, Darren. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, let's kick off. I mean, we will, of course, uh, discuss the major conflict uh, that is uh, on European soil in our conversation, Steve. But Let's first take a look at the North Atlantic Treaty Organization that was once branded as brain dead by French President Emmanuel Macron. Now, NATO has been rejuvenated. Uh, the club that demands a 2% of GDP being contributed by member states has always had a bit of a rocky issue with people actually making the grade, but that seems to have changed. So we can expect now with NATO, with this new lease of existential life that's been pumped into it, it's going to see its its GDP or it's going to see its uh, contribution uh, expenditure uh, rise by about 7% in the coming year or two. But looking at it from a European perspective, we can see that this added money coming in from member states uh, is a good thing for Europe and a good thing for European security with a a, a resurgent Russia having a war on our doorstep here. But globally, is that good? Is that good news for global security? Well, I think when you look at it and you go back over the last decade, what we find is militarisation, uh, when you're looking at the average per countries, has decreased. Mm. That's when you're looking at the number of armed service personnel, percentage of GDP spent on the military. In fact, 113 countries have decreased their militarisation in the last decade. So I think what we're going to see uh, rising out of the Ukrainian conflict is an increase in expenditure in Europe. And as you said, the overall budget should go up about 7% for all the NATO countries. But I don't know how much of an effect that's going to have on other parts of the world. North America? The answer is yes. Mm. Now, so if you look at Latin America and South America, well, it's probably different. If we move out into Africa, again, it'll vary from country to country. Now, countries in the Sahel, for example, which are particularly challenged through terrorism, we'd expect in a number of those countries to see increases as well. So we then move over to Asia. And if we look at South Asia in particular, you've now had the Afghanistan war. That's now come to an end. Mm. So in many ways, we'd expect to see some decreases in military expenditure there. But India, for example, that may be different because it's got issues with uh, China. And then you've got the effects over into Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia. And so we'd expect in a number of those countries to see increases in military expenditure as well. So it's difficult 
to actually make a prediction going forward of just how the, or how this is really going to affect global expenditures on the military. Mm-hmm. But certainly we do need a strong military to be able to defend our countries. But every extra dollar we spend, which we don't need on the military, could be more productively invested elsewhere. So understanding these balances is very, very difficult. Uh, and a lot of the times, it's I guess, it's up to the citizens of the country to determine what they think they need to feel protected. And indeed, this you know brings us straight into uh, the conflict that um, was launched by Russia onto Ukraine's uh, territory on the twenty fourth of February. I mean, you know, we have seen the like the international repercussions have been palpable. You know, oil and gas prices are soaring, food shortages, grain exports uh, affected, fertilizer production uh, has fertilizer I've, I've heard has, has tripled in price in, in various regions. Now. The conflict has triggered fundamental changes in defence postures and policies, supply chains, etc. Now, how long are we looking at for the world to readapt and reorientate with this conflict that is affecting, that has repercussions uh, rippling around the world? Well, I think we've got other things coming in onto it too, because we've got all the issues coming out of COVID. Mm. The supply chains hadn't fixed up out the back end of that. Sure. We've then seen a China, particularly Shanghai, go into lockdown, which has further exacerbated a whole lot of supply chain issues, which again underpin inflation. Then mm. on the back of that, We've now got the Ukraine war, which has turbocharged a lot of those inflationary pressures and supply shortages. They're certainly not going to clear in the next two years. But the real factor is inflation and what that's going to do to the uh, global economies, particularly in in terms of turning them into recession. Mm -hmm. So if we look at global debt, and I don't know the figure today, but if we went back six months ago, it was 246% of global GDP. So that's all private debt, government debt, and business debt. So now that's incredible amount. So if we start to look at record low interest rates, like we'll say 1% to 2%, now with inflation running at 8%, and it's probably going to go higher when we just look at the shortages currently, where do the interest rates end up and how well can the economies cope with that? I don't think well. But on the back of that, if we look back over the last decade, there's been a number of areas where I guess measures of uh, global peacefulness have been eroding. And so political instability is the highest it's been since we started the Global Peace Index 16 years ago. And obviously, part of that is fuelled by the Ukraine, but it's also fuelled by North Asia and the tensions with China and a number of its neighbours. Political terror scale, that's violence against its citizens, that's as high as it's ever been as well. Violent demonstrations, up at record highs as well. So we can see we've got a number of issues which are coming together. Uh, if we look at uh, refugees, they're at 88 million now. That's the highest they've yeah. been in the last 16 years as well. And indeed, there was a report that came out from the uh, Norwegian Refugee Council only last uh, week um, with Jan Egeland, the, uh, the Secretary General, saying for the first time ever, no, for the second time in a row, all 10 IDP, top 10 IDP uh, refugee problems and internally displaced problems are all in Africa. So indeed, we, we, we can move on to that subject now. I mean, it's a, I've, a, I've a 
two questions kind of wrapped into one. I mean, you know, looking at trying to deal with, as you said, inflation and uh, trying to offset that with, you know, rate hikes or whatever, without getting into the too much the, the microeconomics of it. But have we got the tools in 2022, technologically and logistically to offset the negative impact of the invasion in Ukraine? And also, is there the wherewithal in developed countries to actually come to Africa's assistance. Because on the back of that report with the Norwegian Refugee Council, um, Egeland said that there's massive donor fatigue when it comes to Africa and Ukraine has stolen all of the limelight. Well, I think if we're looking at it today and we take the scenario going forward that we're probably going to have recessionary environments. Mm -hmm. Europe and also North America will be looking at trying to reinvest in the Ukraine at the end of the war. I think there is going to be less money for Africa. We've seen donor fatigue over the last decade. More and more countries are pulling back on their overseas developmental aid. That's classic would be the UK through DFID. Now, if we move down to Africa, for example, and so Africa's sort of, you've got it's many different parts. A lot of the time we think of Africa as one part, but the area I'd like to focus on is the Sahel. Mm. So now if we go back and we look at global terrorism, in fact, last year was the best year for 20 years. It was really quite surprising. Yeah. And that was mainly because you ended up with terrorism becoming a lot more concentrated. There was a small decrease in deaths to about 7,100, and that's about where it's been, 7,100. 100 to 7,300 for the last four years. But we're finding it's getting concentrated in more and more countries. For example, 90 countries improved, 10 deteriorated. So where is the deterioration happening and where is it becoming more concentrated? That's in the Sahel. So now when we look there, you've got the most, uh, 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 the fastest growing terrorist group in the world, JNIM. You've also got the most lethal terrorist group in the world as well Islamic State of West Africa for every attack they kill about 15 people but over and above that you've got a systemic issue with a whole range of problems Mm. so the terrorism is one part of it lack of resources food and water in particular you need the water to get the food you've got very very weak governance as well yeah Yeah, a lot of the refugees but underpinning all that and this is where it gets really difficult is it's also got the largest population growth in the world. So Niger, for example, the population is projected to increase by 161% in the next 30 years. So now, if we look at this area, it's greater than 90% growth rates in population in the next 30 years. So as we can see that, and the resources have already strained, we know that at least two-thirds of the people are food, food insecure in the Sahel, at least. And now we look at the stresses which are becoming on food supplies as well. This is a recipe for a lot more issues. And indeed, we saw that with the coups of 2021 in uh, Mali and Burkina. We've seen the complete collapse of international relations or foreign relations, bilateral relations between France and Mali. They've pulled out of the G5 uh, Sahel. ECOWAS has slammed them with sanctions. So now what very much to the displeasure, I think, of the French. Um, I would like to get your take on uh, how do you interpret uh, Russia's renewed interest uh, in inverted commas in the African continent? I mean, a lot of places such as the Central African Republic and Mali, which were traditionally French 
zones of influence are now turning to Russia. Well, certainly you've got the Wagner Group. It's been really quite interested in Mali. But let's come back to the Ukraine because that's the centre of gravity for Russia now. So we can see the Wagner Group's actually pulling out and pulling its troops out and using them now in the Ukraine. We can see that in the Central African Republic, for example, they organised a group of mercenaries uh, from there to come over and actually uh, fight for Russia in the Ukraine as well. So I imagine what they're going to do is the resources are going to be pulled out over the next year or two. Now, that may change. As Russia moves forward, its economy is going to be much more restricted than Mm. what it has been in the past. So it's going to be a lot harder for it to fund groups like Wagner going forward. However, China may come in and fill some of the gap. So China, for example, has just in the last year appointed a a peace envoy for the Sahel. So we need to see how that develops over time. Time. That may be a good thing. It may be a bad thing. We don't know yet. Well, indeed, there was a, there was a, um, a Senegal-China conference that happened there recently, and the uh, Senegalese foreign minister was um, pleading on China to put boots on the ground in the Sahel, which was a, a big step forward. Do you really think that the Chinese, this is one of the, the keys to China's economic success, is to make sure that they haven't got into any hard wars with anyone. <laughs> so uh, do you think that they actually would heed that advice to gain influence on the continent? Yeah, I think we're, what we're seeing with the China, it's slowly stepping up up in terms of its in, in involvement. So we can see, let's say, down in the Pacific Islands now, it's starting to put a, 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 a military advisors, a advisors on a police and a, a, and a crowd control. So they're starting to step up on the advisor side. I find it very, very hard to imagine that actually put troops on the ground at this stage in the Sahel. But I could see them putting technical experts in there to help with advice. Yeah, but indeed, it's definitely something to look out for. And, in, you know, mentioning China and uh, having a, an Australian in the room, I'm going to just uh, have a little look at uh, the AUKUS debacle that was uh, almost a year old now. But, I mean, uh, this was, of course, when the submarine deal between um, Canberra and Paris fell through for another deal with the US and the United Kingdom for nuclear submarines rather than the old uh, diesel-powered ones here. So there was a huge diplomatic spat. There was a yeah. high dudgeon with the uh, government in Canberra. But since then, the government has changed. But has the dynamics have the dynamics changed in the Indo-Pacific uh, in the last year? What exactly is the latest take on a resurgent China trying to gain influence, as you mentioned there, across you know Melanesia, Polynesia, Micronesia? Well, I think the dumping of the deal took mm. everyone by surprise. Uh, there was only a very few people within government who actually made the decision. A lot of people within government mm. found it a surprise as well. But look, when you're looking at the uh, Pacific, the, uh, a lot of renewed interest with China. They're starting to move down in there. Australia is vigorously trying to push back to maintain its relationships there, obviously, uh, because of the history. France has got a lot of interests uh, there as well. So really, I think there's a lot of energy going on in trying to repair the relationship. Now, if you look at Australia in the last uh, month, has had a new government come in. So the old bad guys are now, from the French perspective, are all yeah. gone. And so there's an opportunity for a rapprochement. And I think the 
cultures between uh, France and Australia are very, very similar. We share a lot of similar values. And there's also just that strategic interest of shared interest back up in the Pacific. So I'm quite confident those relationships will repair and repair quickly. Well, indeed, uh, the French Foreign Minister, uh, Le Drian, was uh, not holding, his, pulling his punches when he said that he was delighted that uh, he could see the back of Scott Morrison <laughs> uh, in the throne in Canberra. So, indeed, we have got that. Uh, there is moon now for a diplomatic manoeuvre with the, the new administration there. Um, so, but, the, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, looking at the, the Ukraine crisis and, um, well, basically, one could say the, the West resting on its laurels with uh, 2008 in Georgia, 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. Uh, this was, you know, long in preparation in Putin's mind. But many people are also looking at uh, China and Taiwan. And uh, it seems that that could be the next flashpoint. Is is Taiwan still a big, big uh, issue that uh, needs to be, uh, well, addressed or protected from a a resurgence of Beijing? So I think if we look back on it, the presidency stated that he wanted it integrated by 2030. Mm. I think after looking at what's happening inside uh, the Ukraine and just the difficulties Russia has, I think they'd be thinking twice about launching an invasion any time soon. That'd be that'd be my take on it. If they're going to do it, they'd have to realise that there's probably very, very serious consequences from doing it. A lot of people don't realise how close Taiwan is to the Chinese ma- mainland. Mm. And certainly they've got missiles which can reach well inside China. So I think... For the PRC to launch an attack, they'd have to think very. They'd be thinking very, very hard about it at the moment. That that would really be my take on it. But if we come back to the Ukraine, and it's amazing how things can change in a year. So we've just crunched a whole lot of data on the uh, perceptions in the Ukraine for uh, the Lloyd's uh, uh, Register Foundation. Mm. Uh, so it's perceptions of concern and perceptions of optimism in 2021 in Ukraine. So most people were optimistic about their future. Most The number of people who thought they could have the best possible future five years out, it increased quite dramatically from two years earlier, whereas globally that had actually declined. Yeah. The, uh, the optimism in many ways was on a rise and so, and in terms of concerns, war and terrorism rated number six. Like oh. rated after health, that's without taking COVID into concern, the economy, infrastructure, financial hardship, mm. and one or two others. So, in many ways, the Ukrainian citizens didn't seem coming. And to back that up, if we went back to the 2021 Global Peace Index, the Ukraine had one of the largest increases in peace. So the optimism which they saw was underpinned yes. by actual reality. But one of the things which was even more fascinating, only 20% of Ukrainians thought the country, the government, was capable of dealing with an emergency. Yeah, we look at it today, and I think the government see, outshone everyone's expectations. Well, this is it. Uh, they, they underestimated uh, Volodymyr uh, Zelensky uh, because he was just, as far as they were concerned, a, a stand-up comic who got to the got to power by mistake, by popular vote. You know, but uh, uh, he's really proven himself to be uh, quite a formidable force, and I, you know, we all know that the Russians did not expect that. Uh, but one interesting thing that is coming out in uh, this uh, global peace index as well is how social media 
media has changed the way intelligence has been gathered. And we're really seeing this uh, from the Ukraine war. I mean, Zelensky's, um, I, won't, I wouldn't like to use the word manipulation, but his control and his uh, perception of and the power of social media, of now 5G technology has been rolled out. People are uh, filming things in real time that are going directly up onto social media sites. One could say, am I right in saying that modern warfare has now become a lot more accessible and cheaper for people to actually run? I think the answer to that is yes and no, uh, depending on what level of warfare. So obviously, and you can see this globally, the cost of a, a automatic weapon is very, very cheap. In a lot of parts of the world, $20, $40, $200, and you've got yourself a really, really lethal weapon. Now, on the other hand, uh, what we're seeing, and we can see it with the, uh, the Ukraine trying to get at the uh, Russian uh, mil- artillery pieces, which are shelling them, mm-hmm. they need really sophisticated and long-range missiles. Now, they're very, very expensive and very, very hard to get, and they're relying on the, uh, the US to supply them with it. So at one end... The answer is yes. Mm. At the other end, not so much so. But I think the thing which struck me, really struck me out of this, was just the change in the way intelligence is gathered. So if we're looking at now, everyone's got access to the mobile. They may have access to different social media platforms. So you can see a tank coming down the street. You ping it on social media. Uh, that gets or this bomb goes off somewhere. Now, you see some artillery. Now you've got the ability to put that up on social media. That gets shared instantaneously and in real time. It's unfiltered. It's raw. And so in terms of intelligence and intelligence gatherings, that's vastly distant, different than what it would have been even a decade ago where you'd have some central body collecting it, then filtering it to make sure it's right, then disseminating it, which quite often will after the event. Very interesting indeed, and I think uh, I don't think anybody expected social media platforms to have developed in such a way. Uh, but there we are, and that is the the, the lot for our uh, world in 2022. Um, Steve Killalay, Australian philanthropist, founder of the Institute for Economics and Peace, and of course the Global Index that's uh, coming out this week. I'd like to give you the last word on the uh, Global Index before we wrap up uh, Paris Perspective today. Sure. Well, what I'd say is, if looking back over the last. 16 years, what we find is that more countries have improved in peace than deteriorated. Something like 86 countries have improved, where 75 have deteriorated. Yet global peace has fallen roughly 3% over that time. So what we can see is that in many ways, it's countries fall much faster than they improve. So peace is something which we improve gradually. One of the other things, and this may be underlined by modern technology, is that we find there's a growing gap in peace or a growing inequality in global peace. So the most peaceful nations are slowly improving in peace, while the least peaceful nations are becoming less and less peaceful. Mm. And so there are a couple of the global trends. But what I'll finish on is just a note of a concept called positive 
peace. A lot of peace in that. But <laughs> what it is, is it's the ad- it describes the attitudes, institutions and structures which create a peaceful society. And this is a byproduct of the work from the Global Peace Index. But the same things which create a highly peaceful society also create a lot of the other things we really want as well, like higher per capita income, better performance on the measures of the ecology, better performance on measures of inclusion, development, well-being, happiness. And so in the West, we've actually got an erosion of our democracies. And so positive peace is a mechanism which we can use, not only to improve our peace, but to improve the way our societies operate holistically. Well, Steve Killaday, thank you very much for that roundup of uh, this year's uh, Global Peace Index. There's a whole chapter on positive peace uh, in the, in the uh, report this year, which is incredibly interesting, but very, very, very well illustrated. Uh, Steve Killaday, thank you very much for joining me on Paris Perspective today. Great. I've really enjoyed being here. Thank you. And thank you for watching and listening Paris Perspective. And you can always, as always, get all of our previous editions of Paris Perspective on rfienglish.com forward slash podcasts. And of course, wherever you get your podcasts from me, David Coffey. Talk to you soon.